This message is a recording from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. Okay, well, hey, good evening. Good to see you all. Um, My name is Chris, and it's good to be together. Uh, We're in the season of Eastertide, and so as we continue to make our way through, it's been interesting that uh, to set up our times of being together We've actually had moments of lament. I'm like echoey. Uh, had moments of lament to, to lead us into that from, I don't know, three weeks ago, I think, when I did that. Then Alexis did last week, and then Aaron did again this week. So there's just some, something about we're in a season that's supposed to be this celebratory Jesus is resurrected, and we've won, and off we go, and yet we've had these continuous moments where we like sit in this this lament and so I think it's fitting that our passage for today actually again kind of exists in the complexity of this in-between of of lament and celebration which I guess if we're starting to see a theme together it's that like it's like the whole bible right like it's like that's like all of the way of Jesus as it exists in this in-between and our calls to figure out how to be Jesus people in the midst of it so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read John 10, 1 through 10, and then I'm going to zoom in on verse 10. So I want you to get the context first, and then we'll go from there. So here's the passage, John 10, 1 through 10. Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, which seems to also be a theme. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. As if he made any sense out of what he had said before. With the context of that in mind, here are more translations of verse 10, because verse 10 we're going to zero in on today. The voice translates it like this. The thief approaches with malicious intent, looking to steal, slaughter, and destroy. I came to give life with joy and abundance. The NRSV says it like this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The NIV says it like this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The message reads like this, a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And the First Nations version reads like this, thieves enter only to take away life, to steal what is not theirs, to bring to ruin all they cannot have. I have come to give the good life, a life that overflows with beauty and harmony. 
So what might Jesus mean? seems there's multiple interpretations of this good life. There's also a thief who steals and kills and destroys, and that seems to be a pretty agreed-upon theme. So what does this have to do with how we live here and now? We pray, and then we're going to zoom in on this verse. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we just thank you that you are a God who is with us. We thank you that you meet us in this place when we gather together, that there's uh, a real way in which you desire to show us who you are and what you're like and invite us into the ways of Jesus. And so I pray that we would be attentive to that. I pray that you'd give me words to speak, words that are for you and from you, that we would make much of you and that we as a community of people would continue to practice your ways as the multi-ethnic family of God. We love you. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so in trying to frame our investigation of what Jesus meant, I think it's just helpful to remind us that Jesus seems to be saying that there are forces at work in the world that take away life, destroy it, and ruin it. We're all like, yes, uh-huh. He also seems to be saying he has come to offer something good and full and abundant in contrast, some harmony way, if you will. So what really then is this life? Like, how do we actually live it together? And what really is this thief that we're up against? And if I was to add more questions, how should we live this life Jesus came to give us? How can we live it well? Why are we here and what should we be doing? These all seem like questions to me we should be asking when we come across this verse that has been so pivotal to followers of Jesus for centuries. The work of theologian Sally McFagg has been guiding me as I wrestle with these questions, and so I'm just going to kind of quote her as my guide throughout. And she begins this way. She begins by reminding us there's a, a way of being human that is dominating our Western world in the present age, and she calls this the anthropology of individualism, okay? She goes on to say that this individualism has reached its culmination in the pursuit of more and more and more and is thus undercutting the health of our planet and the happiness of human beings. Okay, okay. So as we nod along, yeah, that sounds like something that we're familiar with. We wonder what is an alternative way to live amidst an ecological crisis and unjust forces of market capitalism that she would argue, and I would agree with her, are probably like two of the biggest crises facing us today because they create all the systems of injustice that follow. If the metaphorical thief is luring us into stealing and destroying resources, whether they're economic or ecological, how can we join Jesus in what he professes is an abundant life? McFaig offers a fourfold process to move us from belief to action. And I'm going to share a summary of the process and then we'll explore around in that a little bit. Are we tracking so far? Yeah? Okay. All right. Here we go. These are, this could get a little heady for a second. And you're just going to be like, cool, get to the meat, and I'll get there in a second. Okay? Here are, the, here are her steps, though. She's got four of them that she presents in a book that she, it's titled Blessed Are the Consumers. And, and there are four, four pathways, if you will. Uh, that move us from belief to action. The first one is this. Experiences of voluntary poverty 
to shock middle-class people out of the conventional model of self-fulfillment through possessions and prestige and into a model of self-emptying as a pathway for personal and planetary well-being can become a form of what she calls a wild space, a space where one is available for deep change from the conventional model of life to living another one. Okay, that's one. Number two, she says, is the focus of one's attention to the needs of others, especially their most physical, basic needs, such as food. This attention changes one's vision from seeing all others as objects for supporting our own ego to seeing them as subjects in their own right who deserve the basic necessities for flourishing. We begin then to see everything in the world as interdependent. The second one. So remember, these are all ways in which we move from belief with our heads to action in the world. This is what helps us do that. The third one is this, the gradual development of what she calls as a universal self. As the line of constituting one's concern or your compassion or your empathy moves from its narrow focus on the ego to reach further and further out until there is no line left, till you care even for the caterpillar, she says. This journey, rather than diminishing yourself, increases its delight, but at the cost of the old egoistic model you lived by before. And the fourth way is this. The new model of this universal self now operates at both a personal and public level. And so she names these as the planetary house rules, right? As the planet. The planet's rules are this. Take only your share Clean up after yourself and keep the house in good repair for those who will use it after you. So, there they are. And I'm not going to turn this into a lecture, even though it's already kind of there. I do want to linger uh, on this a little bit, right? Like, so there's this image that she provided at the beginning. What is this wild space that she talks about? She talks about there's a way of voluntary poverty, a way in which we engage in something so that we might shed the way possessions or prestige define us. And she calls this a wild space. And in the wild space, our beliefs move to action. How do we live there? How do we grow there? How do we learn to practice the ways of Jesus in such a space like that? And it's not like some space where we go and we berate ourselves into these acts of voluntary poverty. This isn't so that we might make ourselves suffer, right? But rather, it's a chosen wilderness where we explore our baseline material needs. What are the very things we need? Wild space is a space of learning about our relationship with food, with shelter, with clothing, with community, and even with leisure. And in this wild space, we seek to find a new way of seeing about what it might look like to live a full and abundant life in Jesus. Okay, so what's stopping us? I'm not of the opinion that this exploratory wild space sounds wholesome and encouraging when trying to sort out how to follow Jesus in this full and abundant life. This is a challenging work. It's not so simple as carving out some patterns and habits to evaluate our relationship with creation when, which McVeigh says, we are facing an economic and environmental meltdown of more serious proportions than any generation of human beings before us. Can we live a life to the full amidst such crises? 
because such crises are actually an image of the thief seeking to steal and kill and destroy, which is actually what we spent the last handful of Sundays lamenting. She drills down a little deeper and she makes this link. She says, consumerism is a cultural pattern that leads people to find meaning and fulfillment through the consumption of goods and services. Thus, the well-known comment that consumerism is the newest and most successful religion on the globe is not an overstatement. In fact, she prophetically announces the insidious message that the purpose of human life is to consume is a heresy and should be condemned as such. So, let us condemn such a lie as that, but our purpose is not to consume the resources God has granted us, but rather to share and steward them for the flourishing of all. It's so basic. We know this, right? Like, we're like, yeah, uh uh-huh. So, if that's true, then how do we live in a world with such a prevalent heresy of consumption and still live the downward love of Jesus that claims will bring us the fullness of life? Like something has to change, right? But Mephag laments. She says, change at this level is incredibly difficult and many people find it impossible. Yet it is precisely change at this fundamental level that most religions prescribe. Christians call it conversion and it demands thinking and living differently than conventional society recommends. And Jesus' question is, will we be converted? I don't think this means we need to necessarily learn more about the crisis of climate change or more about the unjust financial distribution. But instead, we must learn how to move from that knowledge into action on both a public and personal level. So to live this life to the full, we can follow a path at both the personal and public level where we operate by what McVeigh called the planetary house rules. And again, they go like this in case you missed them. Take only your share, clean up after yourself, keep the house in good repair for those who will use it after you. And yet she offers a humbling dose of reality. She says, one must not be overly optimistic about such attempts. Nothing any one of us does will solve the immense problems we face but to do nothing is not permitted. And so once again, there's a sense of hopelessness setting in, or at least for me there is. I don't even know where I'm headed in this. We ask the question, has the thief won? Is everything just going to continue to be destroyed, killed off, stolen, or hoarded? So let's chart a path forward and ask again, how should we live the life that Jesus came to give us? That he claims is one he came that was full of abundance and harmony and goodness. How do we live well? Why are we here and what should we be doing? In order to help us answer these questions, in light of the conundrum of this present age, I'm going to introduce us to the Quaker abolitionist John Woolman and the theological concept of kenosis. Just what you thought you were signing up for, right? Okay, so first, this idea of kenosis is is defined like this, to empty the self. That's kenosis, to empty ourselves. It's commonly seen in Philippians 2 where Jesus emptied himself and became human, right? So to empty oneself, she says, is not an act of denial but of fulfillment for it creates space for God to fill one's being. And so we'll follow John Woolman's guiding example as he offers us a grasp of the only way forward, this canonic way forward, if you will. 
So these are the words she says that should drive us in this practicing the abundant life of Jesus. Kenosis, self-restraint, giving space to others, pulling back, saying enough, recognizing the interdependence of all life forms. These are a few of the words that attempt to describe the special and challenging religious contribution to the economic and ecological crises of our time. So let's get to John Woolman. He's a good dude, okay? And he's got this way in which he teaches us how to disorient ourselves and invest in the wild space. We can imagine there's a bunch of different ways of living in the world, but sometimes we don't see how we can actually change and bring about a just and sustainable world until we see somebody who embodies or models the way in which this is happening in the world. Perhaps we need a a radical disorientation, a guide to envision such a life. McFagg believes this. She says the difference between saints, what she's arguing John Woolman is one of, and most of us is that saints not only appreciate something, but they perform as well. She says it's not enough simply to know and admire the good life. The goal is to do it, which isn't that what Jesus was saying to us. Would it make a difference if we paid close attention to some stories of people who have actually performed the quote-unquote good life? Could such lives serve as parables, disorient our usual worldview, open up other possibilities, and could our study of their lives with a focus on the process by which they came to be performers help us be performers as well? And so, here is John Woolman. John Woolman was an 18th century American Quaker. Try and situate him in time. Got it? Okay. A tailor by trade and an itinerant minister. And he was sometimes been called the quietest radical in history. He had a vision of an alternative way of living. His vision was a society built on universal love. And he arrived at this slowly and meticulously by a process of gradually embodying it in his own life. But his manner of embodying this inner truth with action was anything but quiet. He was, in his personal oddness and eccentricity, according to the world's standards, a walking parable of inversion. So let's get inverted. John Woolman ran a successful retail business, but he gave it up because he felt it kept him from clearly seeing something that disturbed him, slavery. He came to see how the money he was making in his business stood in the way of a clear perception of injustice. People who had a lot of property and land needed slaves to maintain them, or so they reasoned. He saw the same problem with his own reasoning. He said his eye was not single because he looked at an, whenever he looked at an injustice in the world, he always saw it through his own eye, his own situation and his own benefit. It was as if he had a double vision. He was seeking his own benefit while trying to pay attention to the injustice before him. If he was able to move himself out of the center of all of this, then he said his eye became single and he saw in focus. Once he reduced his own level of prosperity after relinquishing his business, he could see the clear links between riches and oppression. He wrote in his journal, every degree of luxury has some connection with evil. 
which is like a brutal thing to reflect on, quite honestly. Reducing his lifestyle gave him insight into the difference between needs and wants. Something our insatiable consumer culture has made it almost impossible to recognize. As an ethic for a time such as this, amidst climate change and economic injustice, Woolman suggests the clarity of perception into others' needs that can come through the reduction of one's own wants. So the short version of that is, we begin to see what others might need when we begin to reduce what we want. But what his life offers in this inversion is that woman did not find such self-emptying, negative, or depressing. Rather, he found it fulfilling life to the full. As McFegg puts it, we all agree with woman's casual statement. This is something he was known for saying. Conduct is more convincing than language. But few of us actually practice it. The amazing, both frustrating and fascinating thing about Woolman is that he does practice it. It's no easy task for it involved this constant agonizing and detailed dissection of his own conscious, what the Quakers called the inner light. And you had to be convinced that this conventionally outrageous behavior was necessary. <laughs> Such behavior as this. He wore only white clothing, hat included, because he objected to the use of slaves on the ships used to transport dyes from the West Indies. As I mentioned, he sold his prosperous grocery business because he was making so much money that it clouded his vision of economic injustice. As a guest in affluent homes, he refused to eat with silver cutlery because of the oppressed workers who mined the silver. He would not ride post post horses, walking hundreds of miles to conduct his traveling ministry because the boys who cared for the horses were treated cruelly. Now, well, well, that sounds pretty punk rock, right? Like, woman was this quiet radical. It's noteworthy to reflect that he didn't relish being out of step with his society. It pained him to upset people believing that the wealthy whom he insulted by refusing to eat with their silver cutlery and even the slaveholders whom he fought at every turn were included in his vision of universal love. Hence, Woolman's conversion then was this lifelong, which just like think of that, this lifelong realization that the new orientation of universal love meant not only in the daily details of his own life, but also for the social, political, and economic structures of his culture. His combination of radicalism and unswerving integrity combined with a sense of how the personal and public intertwine makes Woolman a relevant figure for our 21st century dilemma of changing our minds and our lives at all levels. His critique was aimed at people with large land holdings who reasoned they needed these slaves in order to care for their extensive property. He argued in real time that a more simple lifestyle would help these slaveholders to see, that is to imagine and perhaps then enact a different way of living, a way in which you would live without slaves. Thus, early on, woman came to a form of reasoning that saw the widespread and inevitable connection between excessive possessions and violence. 
If all of life is interconnected, excessive possessions at the expense of the basic rights and needs of others results in violence. Which again, is not something we like to hear. It's true in our day too, right? He saw these connections with slavery, with war, with the whites' treatment of Native Americans and wherever possessions stood in the way of seeing clearly. It seems so logical, but at the same time, it's so revolutionary. This was his philosophy for living life to the full. The reasons that our eyes are not single and thus able to see how we perpetrate various forms of violence on others is that our own possessions get in the way. When we see double, we see reality through our own greed and it masks the need of others. Woman's simple logic demanded that he give up his prosperous grocery business when he found the money he was making clouded his vision of the more basic necessities of his neighbor. He abandoned the way of the thief for the way of Jesus. So, hold, just so you know, there's not a lot of answers in this sermon, by the way. So, is it possible to imagine a new image of human life, one in which the well-being of others becomes our practice as well as central concern, a practice in which restraint, sharing, self-emptying, and limits for those of us who have too much is accepted so that the oppressed, both human and non-human, might live. John Woolman thought it was, and he embodied a vision of the self-emptying ways Jesus lived out. So this begins to craft for us what I might call a canonic vision of creative justice, a self-emptying vision of creative justice, if you don't want to use that fun word. The theological notion of kenosis is this. It's an invitation to imitate the way God loves the world. In the Christian tradition, kenosis, the self-emptying, is a way of understanding God's actions in creation, the incarnation, and the cross. As McFaig describes it, she says this. This is where you see kenosis play out, the process of self-emptying. In creation, God limits the divine self to allow space for others to exist. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, but does not take all the space, but gives space and life to others. This is an inversion of the usual understanding of power as control. Instead, power is given to others to live as diverse and valuable creatures. So she goes on and she says, Our society certainly is in need of loud words and big letters when it comes to such things as moderation, restraint, and sharing resources. We don't know how to say, I have enough. To reach this place of moderation involves a conversion. This is where it involves some level of a disorientation, a disruption, a shock that jolts one awake from one's slumber induced by the comforts of the conventional consumer culture to consider a different way of being. Maybe that's all, honestly, the life of Kaleo is proposing. Would we begin to imagine a different way of being? Would we consider a different way of being that joins Jesus in this full, abundant, harmonious life that he's proposing? So now what? It's a good question at this point, right? How can our lives be a reflection of this divine love in this place and time? 
make the case that one way we begin to change our minds and our behaviors is through a communal spirituality. The poet Robinson Jeffers says that we should fall in love outward of that picture. What would a communal spirituality look like? One that's both good for the planet and all its creatures. What is the character of the spiritual practice for just sustainable living? Not like not just with like plants and stuff, right? But with one another, with humans. What kind of spiritual practice is called for as we fall in love outward? We get to dream this together, quite honestly. Richard Rohr notes that in order for us to undergo the conversion necessary to support a a lifestyle of restraint, a kind of suffering or self-denial is usually necessary. He writes that the bubble of order has to be broken by deliberately walking in the opposite direction. Not eat instead of eat, silence instead of talking, emptiness instead of fullness. This is the way of kenosis, self-emptying, and it gets us to the goal of moderation. This is the pathway Jesus came to give us so that we might live a life that overflows with beauty and harmony and abundance. Jesus wasn't saying in John 10, 10, what he came to give was some life that beams us out of the world and into the age to come. He walked around in it showing us how to live here and now. And so we ask in this space, in our time together, how do we do this communal spirituality? How do we cultivate a wild space of togetherness? Right? These are all other words for the ways in which we say, how do we become the multi-ethnic family of God? How do we live as beloved community? How do we have a communal spirituality? How do we cultivate a wild space of togetherness? Like Just keep spinning the thing around, trying to figure out how we might live together in this world so that it might become the world that God intends it to be. A vision to move forward, believe it or not, is actually found in Scripture. And it happens to be one of the other lectionary passages for this Sunday from the book of Acts. Acts 2, 42 through 47, brings us the rise of the concept of together. I'll read it here in a second, but it brings to us the type of together that flies in the face of our present-day anthropology of individualism. It brings us the type of together that flies in the face of the unjust distribution of wealth. Brings us the type of together that flies in the face of the abuse and depletion of the world's resources for our own comfort and consumption. That is where abundance is found in the togetherness of a spiritual communion with one another. Maybe this is the vision that Jesus had for us all along feel like today's world clamors with the question, is there enough? Is there enough for me? If there is, how do we share it and turn our single eye toward the love of our neighbors? Here's how Acts 2, 42 through 47 reads, now that you have all of this in view. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing and meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. 
They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Personally, I've had some time to sit with all of this. I think there's the, you're probably like, yeah, then why don't you shorten it? Fair, fair. I think there's this notion that such a way of living life to the full with Jesus is radical. Like everything that I'm proposing here is some radical way. And sure, I think maybe that's true in a way in which the world invites us to live for ourselves. It might be radical to live opposite of what the world's invited us to. But in the framing of Christianity, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a radical Christian. There's just normal Christians. Like, let's be normal again together. We might appear radical to a world around us to live such a way. But by the power of the Spirit of Jesus at work within us, my hope and my prayer is that we may begin to see with a single eye that God's love for us and our love for one another are one and the same. And if we operate with any privilege at all, then let us heed the invitation to empty ourselves of it for the sake of God's liberating love of all people. And so let me bring this question back one more time. Is it possible to imagine a new image of human life one in which the well-being of others becomes our practice as well as central concern, a practice in which restraint, sharing, self-emptying, and limits for those of us who have too much is accepted so that the oppressed, both human and non-human, might live. I believe so. (laughs) And may such a belief then continue to align. I think we're already on our way, Kaleido. May our beliefs continue to align with action. And may we continue to be people who create wild space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. On an individual or personal level, I don't know what that necessarily looks like for each one of us. But communally, we can say, this is the way to go. Let us continue this practice. Let us learn together. And let us continue then to interrogate our own ways in which we fall trapped to the anthropology of individualism and the constant pursuit of more, more, more. And instead say, what does a life of restraint, a life of sharing, a life of moderation, a life to the full, a life of abundance actually mean for us? And so we envision that together. And so in light of that, I have no more to say. I would like Jesus to speak something to us in some way or another. So let's just sit in the stillness with Jesus for a moment. Donnie, you can come on up and we'll just give a little space there and then we'll sing a song and then we'll receive communion and we'll say, all right, try it again for another week. Let's be still in the presence of Jesus.
imagine what those words might be speaking to you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, God, are an embodiment of the opposite of individualism. You are a vision of a spiritual communion. You show us the way in which to be loved, to be together, to empty ourselves for the sake of one another. I pray that any of us who have double vision would begin to see with a single eye that your love, God, for us and our love for one another are one and the same. Continue to bring us together as a community of people, a wild space of togetherness, a beloved community, the multi-ethnic family of God. May we be people who follow the way of Jesus, people of restraint, of self-emptying, of moderation, of sharing, of cultivating community in a world for the flourishing of all creation. Love you, in your name we pray, amen. Give me Jesus.
For more information about Kaleo, visit kaleophx.com or follow us on social media at kaleophx.